Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast usually about clothes and stuff. Today, with a slightly different angle. My guest is Simeon Brown, author. Would you like to introduce yourself? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, my name is Simeon Brown. I am the author of a book called Get Rich or Lie Trying, Ambition and Deceit in the New Influence Economy. I'm also a correspondent on Channel 4 News and, thankfully, a guest on this great podcast too. So, you've got the book out about influencers. Is that a topic that really sort of grips you? I guess the, the, the book is about influencer culture and influencer economy, but it's also, I guess, really a book about what for me was supposed to be the story of this economic, this particular generation who were turning to the internet to effectively solve and meet their ambitions at a time when the economic contract has kind of shifted against them. There's a promise that, you know, all you had to do was work hard and get education and you could fulfill all your all your goals and your and your dreams and all these things. The book the book was trying to really capture this moment and what was driving people onto the internet and how actually it was very much a, about capturing this particular moment in time as well. So it it is about influence the culture, but I like to think that it's about more than that too. The wider picture, the way that jobs are sort of moving towards the, the gig economy, yeah. the no job security, constant hustle, every person for themselves. Yeah, yeah, effectively. And I guess the hustle culture at the heart of you know, influencer culture and how influencer culture is basically startup culture, but of the self and some of the relationships between what was happening in, uh, you know, what was ha- what was happening in Silicon Valley, and I guess the gold rush around and technology and wealth, and everybody believing that they, you know, if you weren't, if you're a young person now, you're under so much pressure to be successful. You're under so much uh, exposure to images of, of 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 wealth. There are all these so-called role models. Um, for me, it was it was about trying to to look at this promise and the ambition to be wealthy that exists now amongst a lot of people, especially those who come from working class backgrounds, who believe that it's possible. And what does that look like for those kind of at the sharp end of things? Now, you start out by uh, introducing 50 Cent, the American rapper, who was a role model for a couple of generations ago, I suppose. I mean, he's still a role model to some people today. I wasn't even aware he was still around, but... (laughs) But uh, how did he sort of play into that? I, I guess I start the book, you know, I locate the, I start the book, I guess, rooted somewhere in my own story because many of the people who are in the book, who I look at, I feel like I understand them and I feel like, you know, I could have been one of them. And so I, I, begin, I begin the story looking at, I guess, the post-hip-hop consensus in a world in which hip-hop music went from being a somewhat marginalised music to being arguably, well, not even arguably, it is pop music. It is number one in all the charts. It's being consumed by everybody across the world. And I guess the values that hip-hop espouses and those values fundamentally being, uh, those values fundamentally being the ones that had been driven by the post-Thatcherite consensus, laissez-faire individualism, hustle and how that had shaped the sensibility of a generation um, as it had driven them into kind of 
enterprise and individualism and there was a lack of faith in, I guess, maybe collectivism or certainly political collectivism. And so within that, I then followed stories of the early kind of influences or the innovators when it came to generating attention on social media. And some of those people you know, were significant figures in hip hop. I mentioned Soulja Boy in that, in that chapter. And so the book itself was a play on or nods to kind of get rich or die trying, which is obviously hip hop, which 50 Cent's kind of you know, archetype, archetypal kind of hit album, in which that value of, you know, get rich or die trying, you do anything you can to, to make money, how that idea now exists in this current um, moment, and that is to kind of get rich or lie trying, as opposed to, you know, the pursuit of violence, the basically the pursuit of deception or fraud and misrepresentation or hype and how ubiquitous that has become in this day and age in various different spheres and subcultures. And I guess my book kind of is a, someone's described it as a whistle top, whistle, whistle top store, store of the various different subcultures in which that value or that ideology is being, uh, you know, is manifesting and, and is living. And most of it is underpinned by the social media platforms of the last ten years or so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're. I mean, they're. They're. I mean, they're the originals when it comes to, in many cases, <laughs> using misrepresentation to generate an income. Um, and so, you know, within this kind of digital gold rush, the pursuit of clout and you know social media success. I mean, really, it's like. There is also a gold rush taking place amongst investors and you know, startup dons to to build the next platform that is going to become a unicorn. And at the end of the day, all of us who are being drawn into digital work in some capacity, whether it's tweeting or on YouTube or on Instagram, even if we're just trying to curate ourselves on platforms like LinkedIn to get work, ultimately these platforms are owned by a small a handful of kind of shareholders who are the real kind of winners from from all of our digital behavior online. So whether you make whether you generate millions of followers online or you don't, but you're trying to earn an income, there is somebody who's always going to be getting paid for your life online. I want to get back to that in a bit, but I'd like to sort of swing back to the example you used in the book from the sort of early days of uh, a certain garment business in. Uh, LA and how they managed to establish themselves as uh, well they really it looks like they sort of in, invented the influencer model I mean, where, yeah. where, they, where they got people to basically I, do their ad work for free yeah yeah I mean what's interesting is that I, so one of the companies that I looked at in some detail was a company called Fashion Nova I, I recently did an event and I asked everybody in the room have you heard of Fashion Nova and they were kind of you know, predominantly kind of white, middle-class British. And they were like, no, never heard of Fashion Nova. But had I been speaking to, you know, a college class in you know, in a city, London, maybe Manchester, Birmingham, have you heard of Fashion Nova? Like, yeah, of course. You know, it's a, it's a company that effectively is the kind of shop that you might find in a kind of down-and-out high street selling, like, what I call timeless hoochie wear for like <laughs> a few pounds um, that because of Instagram and because of the way that it had utilised attention 
had been able to transform itself into supposedly the epitome of glamour, even though in reality, like it, it's like, where does that glamour actually come from? And so it had become a phenomenon by curating this form of work known as a Nova Babe, in which lots of young women, particularly from kind of multiracial working class background, whether that's in the Bronx or the Queens or Tottenham or Moss Side or whatever, aspire to be like a Nova Babe, uh, have, a, have a range of fashion over or be paid to wear the clothes. And so I looked at how it, it had also pushed uh, the sh- a particular shape. So the Kim Kardashian kind of BBL, Brazilian butt lift shape, super kind of curvaceous, which is created by one of the most dangerous forms of surgery that, that you can have. And how the Nova Bay had been instrumental in that shape proliferating as a form of as a form of work was one one of the ways that it, it had grown and how the way that the company had grown was by in, incentivizing or encouraging people to young women to buy their clothes to promote it for free tag them in the clothes in the hope that they might get a deal with fashion over um yet the clothes themselves are poorly made and i interviewed people who had been exploited by the companies who were actually making the clothes and so it's just an example i guess of of the kind of possibilities or power of social media and this form of work in effectively repackaging kind of glitter as gold which is happening on an industrial scale across the digital world at the moment whether it's fashion over or whether it's nfts or whether it's crypto and from what i can tell what fashion over were actually doing was making their followers feel like they had a worth in relation to the company, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it the the Nova Bay became like a phenomenon, you know. It, 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 and I guess what a lot of companies have tried to do with branding is try and make something ordinary and mundane feel, you know, exciting and something that will give you the consumer value, and which is not unique to Fashion Nova, but it was Fashion Nova's. Uh, method of doing this was different to like say previous companies which would have huge budgets for marketing and you know might pay major celebrities or whatever to wear to what to wear the clothes and then would take out massive billboards or advertising vogue or whatever it was like okay we're gonna do this a lot more grassroots and although we will i guess sprinkle a little stardust here and there so cardi b the american rapper has a has a line and they paid Kylie, Kylie Jenner for a post and things of that nature. It is also happening at a far more grassroots level for just ordinary young women being encouraged and being being encouraged and being kind of uh, sprinkled with free clothing here, you know, once they reached a certain level. And it effectively was able to bypass, I guess, mainstream media to create that hype. Um, and within that, kind of show people you know what you can make an income as in as a as an instagram ig baddie um you can live this lifestyle where you are effectively a vip online because you get free clothes which are badly produced you can you know you you can be you can you can be a somebody and so i guess fashion able was an was an interesting example because it was such an underground juggernaut it sounds like you don't really believe that young girls can achieve this uh i mean 
I guess it's more about what it means. I guess I guess the question was really for with Fashion Nova, what what does that really mean? A lot of people were, you know, getting super. I interviewed girls who were getting really uh, invasive surgeries and procedures, and they were saying, you know, the you know the dream is to be a Nova babe. The dream is to get a, a brand deal with Fashion Nova or PLT. Um, pretty little thing. And these companies, the clothes are badly made. Uh, um, the, the exploitation, their supply chains, and fundamentally the pay, unless you're like a super, like a superstar, isn't that great? And in many cases, people are buying the clothes with, with, in, the, in the aim of hoping that they can tag them to get their attention so that they can be reposted and then they can eventually pay by the companies. So it's like on a kind of mass level, it's like it's not like we're talking about an exquisite designer whose designs are like super dope. Um, or the quality of the clothes is, is 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 great. It's not like we're talking about, you know, fashion which is actually adding value here. You 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 you're looking at the manufacturing of kind of hype to support you know, poorly made clothes, and the footprint of fast fashion we know, you know, is has real harmful impacts on the on the economy, and that's even before you look at the. The then the psychological impact of fast fashion and switching clothes quickly and then having to look a certain way and then not putting things on the internet more than once and then the surgeries and all of these things which have another different kind of social and cultural impact but you know some people are making money online as 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 influencers building up substantial followings and they're getting a sense of self-worth from that so that you know, it, it's, I guess it's like a, it's, it's a double-edged, double-edged sword. It does strike me that the dream must be strong when what you're doing gains you some free clothes, which are free clothes which have really very little worth. Um, but just hoping that the company will at some point start paying you something approaching a salary. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. I mean, it's not even a salary. I mean, that's the thing. It's not, it's not a salary. It's It's just being paid to, to post. And the irony is that Fashion Nova, for those who are successful enough to be, to actually become a Nova baby who's paid, everybody knows that Fashion Nova doesn't pay that great for, for, for a post. And that's even that, that's even the irony. They're, they're notoriously stingy. Well, according to so-called Nova babes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know any of them. But you did mention that um, surgery, because there is a, a sort of beauty ideal that... Uh, these young women want to try to achieve with their Brazilian butt lifts and and other surgeries. Uh, that strikes me as a lot more dangerous. Yeah, I mean the the Brazilian butt lift, the BBL, is the most fatal procedure that you can have, and it's the surgery that transfers kind of fat from maybe an area of your body that you don't want it into your bat- your buttocks and it kind of swells it up. And, you know, it's, it's super dangerous. And the idea that people are pursuing this form of surgery because they believe that it will help them to appeal to a company like Fashion Nova, I think that that is a concern. Obviously, my book also looks at the proliferation of pop-up surgeries, especially outside of the country, who have taken advantage of that new demand in this new space 
And even when I went to you know, meet them, the, the surgeons, a Turkish surgeon or a Turkish entrepreneur who runs a pop-up surgery, you know, he was like, you know, if you get this, if he was trying to get me, encourage me to get surgery, he was like, you know, surgery is so good for your social media following. He's like, you know, if you get procedures and you, you know, post about it, you know, you will grow your social media following. Trust me, it'll be, it'll be good for you. And so he recognizes, he recognizes what is, effectively driving the boom and he was doing pretty well for himself in terms of bookings and generally making money from that demand so these young girls who are basically not wealthy but trying to become celebrities um, were also then having low price surgery to make themselves more popular yeah and becoming sort of surgical influencers as well they're, they're, in, in a way, yes. In a way, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was another kind of, I guess some of them taught another, another form of content. People would be Googling BBL and they'll come to their videos and that in itself becomes a form of in, income. They were linking them to their surgeons. There were all kinds of incentives for them that they were being rewarded for by the surgeons. Um, yeah. And so surgery influencer actually is a very accurate term. Nice chilling and also it i mean these looks they sort of go in cycles like fashion as well so i had never heard of the brazilian butt lift before i read your book okay, right, <laughs> so, okay interesting. this was uh, quite startling uh, but that is obviously something that is popular now yeah uh, but maybe not so in two years i mean what do you do then well i'll let you know my, my second book <laughs> but um i don't know i'm joking yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, there's been some talk now that um, the more extreme element of that shape, the demands of that is um, is, is, sh- is, is, is shifting. Um, but, and so the, some of the people who've had so those surgeries are downsizing those shapes. So they're reducing the amount of... Um, sorry, one second, yeah. So they're just, they're just reducing the... Um, volume of fat in their behind and things of that nature so they are they're actually changing their shape as the trending shape shifts we did mention um who's actually making money out of this and it sounds to me like in this case as well it's surgeons or the people connecting surgeons to young girls who are actually the ones making money that again the people trying to be influencers probably aren't making anything at all much well i mean some i mean some some I mean, I guess it varies, right? We're talking about how many people make money. Obviously, the surgeries, surgeons are guaranteed to make money. Um, the successful companies are guaranteed to make money. The people, the people at the top of the, I guess, the subculture, the Kardashians, and even people in the stratas beneath that, they're making money. Um, you know, and also, I guess it's about the other ways in which people who enter this space then begin to commodify themselves and their shape. So some of the girls that I interviewed who got the BBL shape, their ambition obviously is to be a Nova Vave and to be successful online um, in the various ways that that looks like. Some of them are making money on OnlyFans now. Um, and so they see that of sex work as a stepping stone to earning an income whilst they're, what the career that they really hope for takes off. Um, making money on OnlyFans. 
and kind of, I guess, sex work adjacent based um, forms of labor. So it's like the question really is, what is it that people want? What is it that these platforms and these companies promise? Then what are they doing? Then in reality, what are most people then going through? And then there's also the impact of these things. So some of the young women that I interviewed, some of them who didn't even make the book, you know, they were saying that, you know, having procedures that actually were botched left them super psychologically kind of scarred and harmed, um, questioned their self-worth, made them feel embarrassed. And then it was like they had pursued this shape following the ambitions that my book had kind of touched on. And it just hadn't worked out. And then there was a cost. So, I mean, there, there, is no, there are no absolutes in terms of the outcomes. And I guess that's a part of the, the story. What the promise is and what the reality is for most people. Because you always have outliers and those who succeed will always be narrow. But in this kind of space, the cost of losing are are quite high so in another world maybe for example you want to be a lawyer you go and get a law degree maybe you apply to a chambers to become a barrister let's say you're not accepted into into a chamber you've done your law degree maybe you change careers maybe you do a form of law that you don't, you don't, you don't want to do but overall uh, the cost of not making it what is that in this realm you know, you pursue a BBL because you're trying to get a deal with, with Fashion Nova, you're trying to grow a social media following. If you don't make that, what is the cost? Potentially botch surgery. Um, potentially feeling that you're, on, you're, you're, you're pressured to maybe do a form of work that you don't want to do, which has question marks over just how safe you are. Um, the, the psychological impact of a botch surgery. Um and there's all, there's all these kind of other kind of aspects. In the, in the, book, that, in the book, I interviewed a young girl who lost her nipple. Um, she, lost, she, 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 she almost lost her entire breast. So it's like, you know, what, what is the reality of that when so much of it, so much of the promise of being able to make it online is heavily filtered? It's a sort of <laughs> that makes me sort of think back to 50 Cent and his, what, nine bullets he was hit by, but then you've got this young woman trying to make it as a celebrity and almost loses her breast. I mean, there's a serious investment being put in here. I mean, it's no joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she, yeah, she, she definitely invests. Like, as she says in the book, you know, I'm investing in myself. My parents don't understand this, but it's an investment. And for a lot of people, uh, certainly in the US, and if you are open, completely open to how you make an income by commodifying your body, in or through a more sexual gaze, they would say that it might pay off. Um, and in America, there's there's a whole you know realm of you know people getting BBLs with the aim of becoming big influencers or celebrities, and then working in strip clubs or doing sex work and making a good income from that. Um, so it's like, and they see it as a stepping stone, and they see it as a form of investment. And in reality, that self commodification and investing in an aesthetic that will get attention and punters I mean they would say that it, it is supposed to, it is supposed to pay and for some people it does pay 
And this is where it sort of turns into a pyramid scheme or multi-level marketing because there's only ever room for a very few at the top. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the pyramid thing is interesting because I guess it's like um, the structure of our economy, the inequality is growing and there is a wide and there's there is a wide there is a widening of our economy looking more like a narrow pyramid and then it's about the the various ways that that then looks in different spheres of the economy and the different subcultures of it and then in real cases actual pyramid schemes or ponzinomics are have been regalvanized by the acceptance of it because that is the most purest form of i guess pyramid-based capitalism the way in which it's it's just like when I spoke to people who were involved in them in MLMs they were like well what's the difference between this and any other form or any other forms or any other form of kind of work and it's like I see where their thinking is but ultimately (laughs) a pyramid scheme doesn't really create any value doesn't solve any questions and it's also reliant on getting more people involved in it you know so it's always scheduled to run out and is not necessarily self-sustaining. That's that, 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 that's the issue with it. And the, I guess what I was interested in looking at was how the logic of a pyramid scheme is how our lives on social media l- looks. It's, it's what it follows. It's that, that grammar and the relationship between the two. And although I'm not necessarily, uh, the book is kind of narrative-led and follows stories. Um, and so in some places it is more emphatic in what it says than others and some other places it's just like okay reader what do you make of this what do you think um i think that that pyramid argument i think i think is quite present both as uh grammar of social media but also literal pyramid schemes that are, are rife and then you that's even before you talk about the way that nfts and crypto works and the fact that so many of these um so many of these supposed innovations of web3 um actually are following the exact same logic of trying to see in a transfer of wealth from late adopters to early adopters just by building hype and saying well these coins are going to be worth so much in the future you have to invest don't miss out don't miss out money there's money to be made and in the end really the only way that that value is created is by trying to convince more people that there's money to be made which is literally how a Ponzi scheme works. And this leads us into the, can we even call them financial or investment influencers? Yeah, I mean, I do. I mean, they're, yeah, they're, they're influencers. I mean, to be honest with you, I think that certainly the world of NFTs um, and crypto is purely an influencer-led economy. It, purely. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't exist right now without social media and the structure of 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 of, of influencer based work is solely about building hype, building so called faux communities around around individuals who are launching these these these, these things um, for speculative purposes. So for me, it's like yeah, they, they are influencers, and I wonder, you know, I start off the book talking about the kind of people who you would stereotypically say are influencers, you know, young women who take selfies, who are pursuing a certain level of online celebrity. Like, this is what everybody feels comfortable thinking of as an influencer. But actually, most people engaging with influencer type work don't have that many followers. And usually they're trying to make money as via affiliate links or 
you know, you know, direct selling, and they have hundreds or a few thousand followers, um, and it's like this is what the majority of people engaged in influencer-based work look like. You mentioned affiliate links, and I always think when I see a young girl with a small following, but she's got her own affiliate link. So she's obviously, that's a, that's a huge credit to her because she's been accepted by the com com company in question. So she's important. She's got her own link or her own discount code or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, who's winning there? Is it her or the company? Well, I think, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because obviously... You take Amazon, right, as an example. Amazon initially grew because of its influencer-based, its, its, its influencer program or affiliate program. Um, Uber grew because of its affiliate or recommend referral program, which effectively turned its users into promoters. You know, you get £10 free if you share your code with somebody else. And then what was happening in the early, day, early days where people were just travelling for free because they were constantly sharing the code. And Uber was happy to take the hit because it was funded by venture capital who were happy for them just to dominate the market regardless of making losses, um, which is interesting in itself because some people have compared <laughs> the model of uh, certainly venture capital and its pursuit of making huge losses in the aim of market dominance as effectively following similar types of, of, of Ponzi logics. But I won't go too much into that. But anyway... So, I mean, with affiliates, affiliate links, I mean, it's like a huge industry and people make a lot of money from it if they do at a certain scale. Certainly, when I look at the world of dropshipping in my book, you know, if people's maybe make, those people are making a lot of money. But on a certainly on a micro level where people don't have the same level of capital to do uh, large scale affiliate based work, the incomes are not that are not that vast, um, and they're very low. And certainly, a lot of the MLM companies and which people are affiliates for, they're not making any money. They're not making it. They're not making the minimum wage. They're not making even half of the minimum wage. And then, therefore, the way that they had to make money is by subterfuge and recruiting people to do the same thing as them, which is a kind of a red flag. So, I mean, the question is that it, it just it just varies. It, it just it, it just it just it just varies. Um, but ultimately. Whoever can, whoever they can get other people to work for free, those people will be making the most money. And affiliate work is just another form of participating in a gig economy in which no no employer who is making the bulk of the money is responsible for you in terms of health, healthcare, sick pay, um, even a salary. It's just okay. You do this work for free um, until you generate sales, and then you get a cut. And I think seeing this form of work as a part of that trend, I think will, will explain the, just this moment of precarity that does exist in our economy and who, are, and who are the people who are more likely to be drawn into it. Now, you mentioned dropshipping, and I'd like to go down that rabbit hole a bit because as, as a concept, that perfectly illustrates to me how creative humans are in coming up with new ways to con each other <laughs> can you explain just short how i mean, drop I, mean I, guess, works? I guess i guess dropshipping is like 
one of the characters in my book who's making a lot of my dropshipping, he describes it as like scammy behavior, but not quite full con, but also <laughs> quite reliant on subterfuge. And so dropshipping is where you basically set up a storefront and drive sales, but you, there is no business operation that you are responsible for. So you connect a digital storefront to a supplier, possibly in China, Bangladesh, somewhere across the world, and then they basically receive the orders and then they eventually kind of post it out. That's assuming that it works well. And so the business operation, largely, you are quite removed from. You don't know if these things are going to go out. You don't really know. You know, you might get some complaints if you have an email that is facing. But largely, you. whereas in a lot of businesses, you know, you produce the stock. Um, the stock comes to you. Then you post out the stock. You send it out. That business operation is removed. You're not doing any of that. You are solely there as a marketer for a company that you, for a brand that you've created. So you create a brand, but not really a business. And so with dropshipping, if you can do it at scale, which basically means if you can spend loads of money on Facebook adverts, or if you can manufacture shares on Facebook, pushing covert advert advertisements, um, and therefore you can guarantee clicks to your digital store and therefore sales, you can make a lot of money, but you probably have no control or handle on whether the goods that people are even ordering are arriving or being sent or getting there on time. And is, and if the volume of sales is so high that you can't kind of cope with, if people email you like, I haven't got my goods or I'm going to do chargebacks or whatever, you're not even really engaging with it because that's not your priority. It's just basically ensuring that people buy some random project product that you have no idea if they're going to get it or not. And I suppose you just keep going until the amount of chargebacks reaches a level where your payment process well, 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 basically your company, you. But basically you get shut down. So companies like uh, Spotify, they provide the software for this. Of course, if they get received certain complaints, you know, your business can be shut down. Um, so you people, a lot of the time in dropshipping, they just, they just keep going until that happens. Um, I'm sure there are some people who would say, "No, I'm a good dropshipper. I would never do. I would never do that. I engage properly." But if those, that's, if you're a good dropshipper, get in touch with me. Um, <laughs> let's see. But um, it, I guess it's about this. It's interesting because I guess increasingly a lot of companies are engaging in models of kind of outsourcing, and in many ways that's kind of what dropshipping is. It's basically outsourcing your business and basically just focusing on the marketing. And that whole trend have been has been kind of covered in detail by books like No Logo. Um, and so we're in a grand age where a lot of young people are just raised on a huge, uh, I guess they're raised with a huge awareness of advertising and marketing and branding because they're constantly being plugged into it their whole life. But, and so dropshipping is something that seems to appeal to those skills. Like all you have to do is be great at branding and marketing and that's it. The other, the other aspects of business, which are the harder parts, logistics, dealing with suppliers, creating a great product. It's like, well, that, those things there are the things that nobody does. Or mm. certainly in that world, I should say, or qualify. There's another variant of that, which I find quite baffling as well, where you will be offered a free product 
but you have to pay shipping for it. Yes. And the product is always so cheap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the margin is really the shipping. So have you have you seen many dropshipping companies? I have seen a few. Uh, do, they, do they reach out to you? Not. Well, I do actually get a few mails from people wanting to give me stuff. Okay. And then they want the shipping. Yes. Uh, and it's always... I mean, you can sort of tell that it's not yeah, really yeah, worth it. Yeah, that is almost certainly a dropshipping company, without question. But you had actually investigated and found out that these items that they were offering as sort of quality high-end items were available on AliExpress. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's it's social media is, is rife with is, is rife with companies like this. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like. It's almost a, it's one of the default business models online. Um, and, if, and if people do it successfully, like there's money to be made, but it just speaks to the kind of age of kind of shortcuts and hustle and rather than problem solving or investing in you know, cool products, it's like, okay, you've got to turn about quickly, like get rich or lie trying, like any, you know, just, just, let's just go. Um, and I, I interview, I guess, some people who are what I would call digital hustlers, kind of skilled in subterfuge. And how were they operating? No, I mean, I mean, they were they were running they were running a uh, a dropshipping company making hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, so I mean, like everything that we just mentioned is 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 what is what they were doing. Are these the sort of guys who send you emails saying that you can make a certain massive amount of money by working a very, very small number of hours a week from home? Oh, well, those, 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 comp- those are usually MLMs. Those are usually MLMs, mostly of marketing platforms. And the interesting thing about MLMs is certainly one of the MLM companies who I was investigating they were literally, they had their hands in everything. They were like, okay, we are selling products that show you how that you can trade and trade Forex or trade crypto. And then they were also like, also, we are selling products where you can be a dropshipper. We will teach you how to dropship. And so they were, every single digital hustle that you can think of, they were MLM who theoretically were selling products that enable people to do that. Of course, the real money for them is in the recruitment of subscribers so anybody who then subscribes to do one of these so-called courses um they then say well if you really want to make money because you're not making it drop shipping or because you're not making it trading recruit more people like yourself and if you recruit them then that's where you can make significant amounts of, of, of money and there was one man who i interviewed and he because of how it can it can snowball he had maybe maybe somewhere, maybe now somewhere near a thousand possibly people underneath him in this kind of uh, pyramid. And so he's making a huge amount of money being quite high up in the MLM. Of course, there are people at the bottom of that who are not making and who are not making much. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's drop shipping, and then there are the MLMs. And then there are the companies who are so innovative that they're doing both, they're both MLMs and within that somehow marketing dropshipping too. I suppose if you can come up with a new combination, that might actually be one that earns money. Yeah, yeah. 
when they um, sort of live stream as YouTubers, because that's a whole other game again. I mean, you have the serious YouTubers who who are just so keen to share their content that they will put stuff up and maybe it will make some money. But you have others who have much larger ambitions. Oh, what do you mean? Elaborate. Uh, well, I'm just thinking of the live, live streamers who actually sort of create conflict to controversy. Okay. Yeah, I mean, look, the thing is that it's like the internet is a huge place, right? It's just a it's just, it's, it's, you know, it's just a massive place, and but these platforms themselves are massive places. You know, it's, you go down a rabbit hole, it's like they can go anywhere, and it's extremely sprawling. Even when someone says like, "Oh," they're a YouTuber it's like what does that even mean it's like it means you could be making content about gardening you could be making content about crypto you could be making content about something entirely you could be making content about boxes you could make you could make content about something so mundane like lampposts whatever um for me and the, the book is a, was about was about the the hustle culture and the ideology of, of wealth and creating wealth via enemies necessary and um, what that was an example of and so with and as well as the kind of new forms of work that in which there are super explosive uh, behavior and the new hierarchy that, 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 that exists from people trying to grow their following via existing within the ecosystem people with more followings than them and that you know I guess that's how people anybody grows so online if you've got more followers then you just spend time courting or with those people with more followers they tag you you receive more followers and so forth and so forth and so then that in itself creates all kinds of weird uh incentives and, and kind of five fiefdoms and things of that nature so i guess in, in my book i was looking at how a man who was down and out and had been homeless how he basically ended up effectively earning an income as a digital worker on a live stream being paid to be racially abused and why that as a form of work was something that he was taking part in um, because he basically spent a life in America doing low-wage work um, not having a particular level of agency and basically how this new form of work kind of compared and within that the questions about exploitation and also just the complexities of what it means to make an income courting attention online. And he was also involved in a group of people where there was sexual exploitation and, I mean, it sounded pretty nasty. I can't imagine who would sort of follow these yeah, guys. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's, 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 it's an interesting one. Like, I tried to write very neutral, um, I wanted to raise questions, but not be overtly judgmental. Um, that, that I think that was important. But I think even reading it back is something that people find quite a shocking chapter. But for the people who are in it, it's just so normal and mundane. And I think that that is telling about the rewards and incentives of this yeah, time. Yeah, bring the It is strange that this um, everyone's hunting for more followers and more followers is taken to mean more money 
what is the link there, really? Because I, I don't, I follow some people, but I never pay them. Who, who's actually paying them? Well, I mean, I mean, monetization on the internet has been done by multiple ways. More followers, maybe there's more people to ask for donations. So live streaming community donations avenues so twitch and youtube you know you can tip people even on twitter now they're playing with these ways of you know donating to people who you supposedly like but obviously there's brands who want to catch their attention who will pay you based on how many followers you have um that, that, that's a big part of it as well um I, i'm sure i'm sure at some point in your life you've been approached by somebody who wants to catch your audience um in some capacity whether that's by gifting you something for free or maybe by paying you money to do that. Um, and also, you know, there's then, the, of course, affiliates. So a lot of influencers get discount codes in which they generate income by people who click and consume. So there's various ways that monetization is taking place. And having a bigger audience means theoretically a bigger a bigger market or pool of consumers. Mm. It's, a, it's hard to sort of uh, really understand it, take it in. But I, I can hear what you're saying. Um one thing I was curious about, which you don't mention in the book, is what does it do psychologically to people who are exploiting themselves on internet? Yeah, I mean, I mean, my my book wasn't thematic, or rather, the chapters weren't thematic. The chapters were more story led. So, if I if it was thematic, there probably would have been a chapter like the psychological impacts or mental health. I didn't go into that overtly. Um, I just touched on people who maybe they might have experienced some anxiety or they might have experienced um, psychological uh, of concerns or, or impacts. I raised some questions. I mean, what does it mean to live in an age where your labour is so visibly tied to your personhood? Um, I mean, these are questions that, that, that my book asks but doesn't really answer. Um, certainly leave that to more experienced psychological experts but I think that the question is certainly the, the, the right one and I certainly do think that our behaviour, our norms are completely being changed right now because of this new form of work I remember seeing a, a Stacey Dooley documentary, I think, about a year ago about this young family who were basically um, their own little reality show, sharing everything they did online all the time, basically creating content almost <laughs> every waking moment. And it struck me as how utterly exhausting that must be for them. and How could they possibly manage it? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 for sure, no. I mean, it's super taxing. I mean, let alone <laughs> anyone who wanted to watch them every waking moment and what they were getting out of it. Yeah, no, it's, it's it, it is like influencing is definitely work, and I I don't think that the toll of that labour is really fully understood by by most people, let alone those engaging it themselves. It is interesting that you point out that influencing is work because, as we covered, um, you're not actually sh sure to be making any sort of wage and you don't have an employer as such. But And you pointed out you're not getting any benefits, you're not building up your pension and you're not paying any tax. 
Well, I mean, I mean, well, you're supposed to pay tax if you make money. <laughs> so, I, I mean, imagine a lot of it is going under the radar, though, at least um, for those that aren't well, top level. I mean, I'm sure that's the case for a lot of different types of workers, but they're supposed to pay tax. But I think that you're right on the other elements around things like pension, things like sick pay. Like, it's very much important to situate this form of work as, as gig economy-based labour and being a part of a shift and being a part of the shift, do you know what I'm saying? Um, and so that does raise real kind of kind of concerns for people who aren't making that much money. And then what do, do the possibilities in their own life look like? Simply because of the sheer hierarchy and inequality in in that in the, in that sphere, and why it is literally the the free market and all its kind of inequalities really come to life. Now, the book's been out three weeks. It's very readable and enjoyable. And I imagine a lot of people who consider themselves influencers have jumped on it. Do you get the sense that the content is coming as a revelation for readers? I think some people. I mean, the thing is, as I've said, the internet is a big place. So I think that a lot of us, we're used to the seat with which we come online and there is an element of the internet and the things that are discussed which are very familiar to us and there are other things going on which we're just completely oblivious to and because of the, the variety in the book there's something in there that will shock everyone even if only few people who literally surf the internet like you know maybe internet or internet kind of culture reporters who are literally in every part of the internet um, wading through it all. I think only maybe these kind of people would say that they're versed in most stuff. And even then, some of the stories in the book are quite shocking for the general palette. So I think for for many people, it has been quite a revelation and the desperation and some of the delusion, whether that's deceit or self-delusion, I think has felt quite present. And I think certainly the response has been that you know it has given people the ick about this form of of I guess the incentives in this in this world let alone the kind of wider questions that it speaks to around why it is that the so that social media has become the solace or the perceived salvation for young people who now in major cities can't buy a house because of the 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 price the, the price of housing because in real terms and in real terms the real wages are down for kind of graduates over the past 10 12 years compared to certainly people born in in the 70s and looking at how this moment in time you know with the cost of living and the shift against people who were just unfortunate to be born in a time where the economic possibility for their lives have shifted. And so much of the, I guess, the stability that boomers have had and people of a certain generation who maybe graduated and worked between you know, the 60s and, 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 and the 90s or even to the 2000s, was solely based on just the time that they were, just the time they were born, the time they were alive, and the time they bought a house, and the time when certain developments enabled them to to have a certain life. But actually, that 
those possibilities are becoming more tight unless you come from a privileged background and I use privilege broadly you could just come from a home where someone owned property that, that's, that's enough now so I think that that happening at a time when ambition is so high for young people and it's exposed to so much wealth and marketing is so aggressively on them where if you're not successful then that's like a character flaw and then you're living in an age where hip-hop is so hegemonic and these ideas of wealth and self-invention are so are so omnipresent then it's like this it's this it's this moment in time and it's social media that has utilized that and taken that and therefore see enabled the proliferation of pyramid schemes and of people doing anything that they can just to partake in what looks like a gold rush online and so i think that for me it's like it's been it's been it's been good to see readers really kind of connect and feel like i've touched on things that they felt but also shown them worlds which they had no idea uh, was so rife and dehumanizing and yeah i mean the book itself you know it is a very very easy read um a very very easy read in many ways it's a book that's written for people that's, that don't usually read and I think that they've appreciated it it's quite pacey people who read a lot of books and maybe are more anoraks when it comes to uh, non-fiction maybe they might feel like oh well I, you know I, I could have done with more uh, more depth more detail and I think that you know I think that that there is I think mean, that is fair because the, the book is very pacey and it does me very quickly and it is it's you know it's not a book that's 100,000 words, put it that way. Um, so I feel like that, that's a valid uh, critique. But I think in terms of uh, being accessible to a lot of people and readers finding it something that really does generate a visceral response, which is really what I was hoping to do as well, without being overly judgmental, I, I think that it succeeded in that sense. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, I guess that question really, you should answer as a reader. Have you been contacted by many people who would fall in under the influencer label or even any Nova babes? Yeah. I, 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 either thanking you for sort of <laughs> the revelation or <laughs> criticising you for calling them out. I don't know. Do you know what? I haven't had much criticism from... I haven't had much criticism, general criticism. Um, I've been reviewed quite widely. And, I, and there have been maybe one or two critiques of people feeling that like they wanted more depth or detail. Um, and that moves to, and then the, the book is quite quick. Um, but in terms of people in the book, no, 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 I, I haven't had that. But the book's been out three weeks and, <laughs> you know, people don't always read when they read slowly. So <laughs> I imagine that criticism will come. I know that somebody who was aware that they were in the book got in touch with me before the book came out because they saw some coverage in the, in the magazine and they were like, what are you saying about me? <laughs> or whatever. Or, or not so much that, but along those lines. Um, but they, they've gone quiet at the moment. I imagine at some point they'll probably get back in touch. Um, but I do feel the book was written in a quite a neutral, in quite a neutral way. And so I would hope that they would see that 
I think being mentioned in the book can sort of go two ways because I have to admit there were a few of the people in the book I actually had to Google and read more about because they were, who is this person? Yeah, yeah. Some of them I couldn't find, but uh, but the ones I could, I was jaw-dropping. They were real and they were, (laughs) yep. So, uh, I mean, you might be giving them extra clout or... Maybe, maybe, but I, I don't think it's the kind of clout that they want, to be honest. But then they say all publicity equal publicity, so who knows? Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, definitely. Okay, Simeon, that was uh, a very enjoyable chat. And uh, thanks for enlightening us on uh, the world of influencers and the details of your book. Thanks a lot and uh, bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye.